Greetings and welcome to the decentralized justice broadcast. My name is Federico Ast. I am CEO at Cleros. Thank you for joining us. We're on a mission to bring you the latest in novel legal institutions through discussions with foremost experts in the growing legal tech field and beyond. My co-host today is Mauricio Duarte, and our guest is a person I very much admire and who has been a mentor to me. His name is Colin Rule, and he's sometimes called the godfather of online dispute resolution. Hello, Colin. How are you? <laughs> Federico, my friend, great to be here with you. And the feeling is mutual. We, I, we are a mutual admiration society. You have, you've inspired me. I've inspired you. So uh, we'll, we'll put our arms around each other and march into the future side by side. We will, definitely. So let me tell the audience a bit more about our guest. Um, Colin Rule co-founded Online Resolution, one of the first online speed resolution uh, companies in 1999. From 2003 to 2011, uh, Colin was director of online speed resolution for eBay and PayPal. Then he founded Modria, a very important company in the field of ODR. In 2017, Modria was acquired by Taylor Technologies. And from 2017 to 2020, Colin was Vice President for Online Computer Solution at Tyler. And now you just finished your job at Tyler and are at your new endeavor, which is Mediate.com, right? That's right. Yes, I worked at Mediate.com as general manager in 1999. So I'm still a, a senior consultant at Tyler, but I've taken on the role of CEO of, of Mediate.com. I'm really happy to be, uh, to be back in, in focused 100% on the dispute resolution field. Yep. Awesome. We will talk about that a bit later. And then we have also Mauricio Duarte, who is going to be my, my co-host in this um, episode. And Mauricio is part of the Cleros Guild. And so he can introduce himself to the audience. <laughs> well, hello all. It's great to be part of this new podcast, always with the innovative uh, ideas that has Federico for this podcast. So Colin, it's nice to meet you as well. We're certainly going to have a lot of things to talk about. Just a quick background for future references. I'm an attorney uh, brought up in Guatemala, uh, but right now I'm more focused on creating different legal tech products and solutions with A2J Tech. It's a Colorado enterprise that builds different solutions to improve access to justice. So definitely we're gonna have a lot to talk about during this episode. Good. Um, so let's. I, I have a question. The first question I have for you, Colin, is that something that maybe people don't ask you that much, but I understand you were at the Peace Corps in Eritrea in sure, the nineties. That's right, ninety-five to ninety-seven. Uh, how was that? Oh, it was amazing. It's one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Uh, you know, I, I, my wife and I were actually living in France before we got our assignment, and we had asked to be stationed in Africa. So we were relatively sure we were going to get stationed in. Uh, West Africa, just because that's where everybody speaks French. But they called us up and said, hey, you're going to Eritrea. And we were like, Eritrea? We didn't know that much about it. But when we went there, we just fell in love with the people and the country, and we're still very connected to the Eritrean community. My Tigrinya skills are not as good as they once were, but uh, I still love uh, Injera and Zigni and Dulet and all of the, all the, the great things about Eritrean culture. So I, I left definitely part of my heart in the Horn of Africa uh, back in the 90s. So thank you for asking about that. I didn't know you even knew that. Actually, you know, I found it interesting because uh, like being in the Peace Corps and then having like a rule as your last name, 
so kind of your career was already like set up from the beginning. <laughs> If only. Yeah, I mean, the thing I was such a technology nerd and I had a little laptop that I wanted to take with me to the to Eritrea. And uh, when I showed up at our sort of pre-training in Washington, D.C., they said, no, you can't take your laptop. And I was like, what? No, I need I need technology. But uh, I went away. Uh, I mean, there was only like three or four computers in all of Eritrea during the time that we were there. And I left in 95, came back in 97 and just the Internet had exploded while we were gone. I mean, those two years, we were really off the grid. So it was incredible. Uh, when we left, nobody knew what the web was. And then by the time we came back, they had ads on the sides of buses. They were like, visit us at www. So it was amazing to see how quickly the change occurred. But all of our friends, they were complaining, oh, the internet needs to be faster. And, you know, my email account, it doesn't work right. And, you know, they didn't even have it a couple of years before. And they were already complaining about how they wanted it to do more things. So it was it was a very interesting time to go away. And how did you start with them? Um, so you 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 get back to the U.S. Um, then yeah, it was the the, the dot com bubble sure. basically, right? Um, and then you create your first company, online resolution, That's right. right? That's right. I mean, it was the late '90s, and I was in grad school at Harvard, and everybody was buzzing about the internet. Like, this is going to change the world. This is going to be huge. And I, as a nerd and a technologist, I completely agreed. Uh, and uh, I had been a dispute resolution person. I'd worked at the National Institute for Dispute Resolution before I did the Peace Corps. So I, I was passionate about dispute resolution. But then this whole thing, how are we going to resolve disputes over the Internet, started to crop up. And I was like, I want to do that. That's what I want to focus my career on. So I, I left the Kennedy School where I got my master's in public policy and then joined a company called Mediate.com. Uh, that I'm now CEO of. And at the time, it was just sort of like a locate a mediator database um, that, would, you know, you could type in your city and they would say, here are some mediators you could work with. But uh, I spun out a company from mediate.com called Online Resolution. And I ran that in Cambridge for about four years before I went to eBay. So it was a very exciting time. You know, the, everyone had the sense that the whole world was going to be reinvented. And it turned out that was true. The Internet has completely reinvented a lot of things. Um. And then, like, um, what happened to, to that early, um, like, uh, wave of companies doing ODR in the late 90s? So didn't that really work? Because we, we are not, like, currently solving everything on the Internet. Sure, That's a fact. sure. Well, you know, uh, there's a, uh, I think it's an economist, a guy named Joseph Schumpeter, who talks about creative destruction. And that's pretty much the way technological innovation occurs. You know, you, uh, and from 99 to 2001, we had the first kind of tech bubble. And there was a lot of money sloshing around. And some big companies came out of that. Cybersaddle.com, um, uh, uh, Square Trade, Online Resolution. You know, we all created companies. I think there was probably 20 or 30 ODR companies in the United States during that time period. And then you had 9-11. And then there was a crash. And uh, all the money went away. And a lot of those companies died. So, uh, And that's what happened. We shut down Online Resolution. And then I moved to eBay. And I worked at eBay from 2003 to 2011. But a lot of those companies, I mean, Square Trade did the first uh, online dispute resolution for eBay, and they had to pivot a couple times. But now they're a multi-billion-dollar company. Uh, you know that uh, they provide kind of warranties for online purchases of electronics. So some of the companies are still around. CyberSettle is still around. It didn't make billions of dollars, but a lot of them shut down. But I think that the current innovations are built on top of all of those old companies. You know, you have to have 100 companies and 99 of them fail and then another 100 companies start. But they learn the lessons from the first 100 companies. So that's the way the innovation occurs. 
what did you learn like personally from your first experience um in yeah it was, it was your first startup sure, experience right sure it was um and in the in, and in this industry but what did you learn that helped you in your career later oh on? man i can't even tell you how many things i mean the first thing was i got a degree in public policy but i was passionate about dispute resolution and i took classes at harvard business school on entrepreneurial management and things like that so it was really like getting an mba you know <laughs> to start a company and try and raise money and put together a business plan and creating financial models and hiring people i mean i had no idea what i was doing but i was uh you know i, I thought that i'd just all oh, figure it all out um so you know i made a lot of mistakes going through it the first time and then we ended up shutting it down so when i did modria i, I leveraged all of those lessons for instance i raised a lot of money from friends and family members for online resolution And the thing about that is if you don't have smart money, it's hard to get um, more money in because, uh, you know, the fact that you got investments from your uncle and your aunt doesn't really convince a VC firm that, you know, you're, you really know what you're doing. So then, so with Modria, when we spun out of eBay, we only did smart money, no friends and family. So it was well-known angels, well-known firms, and that really helped us uh, succeed. So there's just a lot of lessons that I learned um, from my first go round. And I think they say every time you do a startup, you learn more and more. Uh, and, and that definitely was true for me between online resolution and Modria. One one of the things that I was going to ask on, and I find fascin fascinating the let's say the the progress within ODR, it's how you notice changes on the reception for ODR back when you were in the '90s to compared to nowadays. How are those comparisons play around? So, for example, how people are more receptive or not of ODR, they have more trust uh, on the justice absolutely. system. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's been a complete sea change, Mauricio, as you might imagine. I mean, in, in when we started uh, online resolution in 99, that was before we had smartphones. That was before we had Facebook. We didn't have social media. You know, the internet was still a very new thing. So I remember I started a blog Uh, in 99 and people are like, what's a blog, you know, and now it's sort of everybody knows what a blog is. So, uh, you know, things, things have changed. I, I also remember doing video based mediation processes in 99, 2000, 2001. And the, the technology was not impressive. I mean, little tiny. That was, that was very, like that was before YouTube, like, like a lot before YouTube. Yeah, it was, it was before YouTube. I mean, I remember, and, and again, I, uh, my, my kids often joke when I tell stories about, you know, all of the, Um, technological breakthroughs that I've seen over my life. They're like, boring, yawn, who cares about all of that? But it was, a, I remember the first time I saw a wireless modem. I mean, I thought, this is incredible. I remember the first time I saw an LCD projector. I mean, I remember the first time I went to YouTube and you clicked on a video and it started playing immediately. I was like, what? How did they do that? Because it used to be you had to download the whole clip and buffer it before it would start playing. So each of these technologies, they really did open the door to the next wave of innovations. And you know, now we're all talking about Zoom and Zoom's amazing, but I'm sure there's gonna be some future video conferencing technology that blows Zoom out of the water. So you know, these innovations are what's, the technological innovations is what's powering the revolution in legal services and online dispute resolution as well, because we get to you know, take advantage of faster internet connections and more powerful computer processors. So you know, the question is not where we are today, it's where we're going. And when I talked about ODR in 99, 2000, 2001, people looked at me like I was George Jetson. Like the whole notion that we would resolve millions of disputes online, it just seemed laughable. 
Uh, and I had, I had many people tell me that, but now it's commonplace. You know, ODR is happening all over the world and, you know, it's resolving tens of millions of disputes. Now, when you talk to people about machine learning and artificial intelligence and smart contracts and crowdsourced resolutions, people look at you like, well, that's crazy futuristic. But I, I've already been through this cycle. I know it, it may take 20 years, but eventually it just becomes normal. And then everybody does it every single day. But at the beginning, they think that it's ridiculously futuristic and it's never going to happen. Yeah, and one of the examples of let's say the mainstream ODR systems is probably many of 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 the audience is now aware that you were part of eBay's and PayPal's dispute resolution right. systems, and it's probably one of the largest, uh, to be honest, justice systems that we have. It's those over 60 million disputes, and 90% of them are probably solved with a software. So, how was your experience with? eBay and PayPal and how that created a mainstream effect of ODR, would you think? Yeah, I mean, first of all, working at eBay and PayPal was a huge education for me because I'd never worked in a Silicon Valley company that was operating, you know, at full speed. I mean, uh, people think of eBay now as a little bit kind of old hat, kind of like AOL or Yahoo. Like it was a big company at one point, but now the kind of the bloom is off the rose. Uh, but at the time, it was the hot company. It was sort of the Facebook of its day. I mean, you know, they had all the best people in the country were headed out to, to eBay. And it was it was really the only e-commerce game in town because, there, you know, that, if you wanted to buy something online, most of the mainstream stores weren't online, but you could go find it on eBay. And Amazon was only selling books at the time. So uh, I think eBay had to solve a lot of problems for the first time. And there were a lot of smart people there. The person that hired me was a guy named Rob Chestnut, who was recently a general counsel at Airbnb. And uh, Rob was a former federal prosecutor and a very forward-looking uh, guy. And you know, he created a division at eBay called Trust and Safety. And uh, dispute resolution, online dispute resolution, was part of Trust and Safety, but also the the feedback system, the reputation system, and sort of the fraud investigations team. They were also part of Trust and Safety. So, you know, Rob built that team from scratch. There was no blueprint for how you would do that. But now, if you look at all the big tech companies, they all have trust and safety teams, whether or not it's Air Airbnb or it's Lyft or it's, you know, Facebook, you name it. They all have trust and safety. And it's because now it's there are a lot of people. I mean, there are people who got PhDs in computer science and they, they go to work every day in skyscrapers and they wear suits and their job is to defraud people around the world, you know, uh, um, mm -hmm. either on payment channels or in e-commerce marketplaces or who knows. So you've got to build a very smart team. It's almost like an arms race where, uh, you know, the bad guys are trying to innovate faster than you can innovate, uh, trying to protect your people. So online dispute resolution is part of that. Definitely building fast and fair resolutions. All of these websites, they need a way for problems to be resolved quickly and efficiently. So, you know, I think I think eBay over the eight years I was there, we learned a lot and we made a lot of progress. But now, as I said, I see a lot of people have built on that progress. And now you look at, at companies like Alibaba, you know, they, they're doing creative things in, you know, crowdsource dispute resolution that are in, in many respects beyond the scale of what we even thought about at eBay and PayPal, just because they're so much larger. So, um, yeah, it, it was but it was really fun to be part of eBay at that time. And a lot of my friends who I worked with there, they've headed out and they, they now work at all of the major tech companies around the world. Let me let me ask you a bit about that, because this is something that for me was mind blowing, like the, the idea of the crowdsource system using users as, as, as judges, sure. basically, like that was like turning around like the logic of, uh, yeah, you know, the guy who solves the dispute is like a judge or some authority 
And that was I, the first time in my knowledge that some someone was putting like the, the resolution process in hands of the peers, right? And to me, that was a hugely a huge inspiration for what we are doing at Claros because we we've kind of faced the same like um, dilemma, right? Can how, can you put the resolution in the hands of users? That's what you did. How did that idea come? Up. I, I, I'm curious about well, that. Well, I would love to be the one to say that I invented that, but I think crowdsourced resolutions actually predated me. Um, there were a couple back when I said, you know, 99, 2000, 2001, there were a couple companies that um, that came out that were using sort of online juries to decide cases. Now, they were thinking about that very much in the court context. So, you know, um, uh, I, I don't think that they really had taken it as far, for instance, as Claros has taken it or Alibaba has taken it. They were often thinking about, okay, well, let's get 12 online people. And then if you have two people that have a dispute, they were almost thinking more like the people's court, you know, where people could come online and put in mm -hmm. a public dispute and then um, other people would come in and listen and then render a decision. And then the parties would abide by that outcome. So this, this idea was around for a while. I, I even think that it was around a little bit on the bulletin boards, you know, pre-internet. Uh, I used to run a bulletin board out of my bedroom back uh, when I was growing up in Texas. And and we had sort of community panels and things like that on the bulletin board um, that would resolve issues when people had flame wars or disagreements. So this whole notion of sort of crowdsourcing was out there. But then when we were at eBay, uh, my good friend and, and co-founder at Modria, Chitu Nagarajan, we started to say, well, why don't we look into building a crowdsource mechanism for resolving disputes here? So we built this uh, eBay community court. And we asked eBay members to come and be jurors in the community court. And, you know, it actually worked really well. Uh, people were very motivated. They wanted to come in and do it. We had a lot of people that wanted to submit disputes. So, you know, we learned a lot. Uh, I think we only did maybe 100,000 disputes at eBay, which obviously if we're doing 60 million a year, that's not that many. But we learned a lot uh, and we deployed it in different contexts. We deployed it in eBay India and eventually we tried to deploy it on the PayPal side. Um, so again, and I remember we presented it at a conference, I think in Hong Kong, we presented, uh, this vision and there were a couple people there from Alibaba. So Alibaba now, uh, has taken that crowdsourced, uh, ODR, uh, idea and they've evolved it way past anything we ever did. But, you know, I can't take sole credit for planting the idea in their head, but again, it, none of this, none of these things are new. They're recycled ideas that get refined and improved over time. So you know, we sort of carried the torch a little bit and then we handed it off and now other people and, you know, Claros has taken it, you know, way beyond anyone else has, has thought about in terms of uh, making it scalable and uh, making it stretch across the entire internet as opposed to being dependent on one website. Tell me a bit, uh, Colin, about the book you published um, last year. Was the new handshake? Sure. Um, that's where, where you where, where you explain about your vision for the future of well the future of justice we could say how would this work in your, yeah in your I mean view? it is interesting I my first book I did in 2003 was online dispute resolution for business and again back then it was very much maybe ODR could do this maybe ODR could do that there weren't a lot of examples of ODR working at scale but in 2017 my my good friend Amy Schmitz and I wrote the book the new handshake online dispute resolution and the future of consumer protection. And the real motivation for that was we had spent seven or eight years working with Uncitral on a project to try and design an ODR system for cross-border disputes. And we were very frustrated because a lot of people were saying, well, you, you can't build a system that's going to work for consumers that is efficient enough you know, to handle all of these low dollar value cross-border caseloads. And we said, oh, I think you can. So we ended up, uh, that book is pretty much our design for what a 
a, a, a large scale, a global, scalable, highly automated ODR system for resolving consumer cases might look like. Um, and uh, so, you know, we lay out all the groundwork and all the lessons learned from eBay and Amy's an, an expert on consumer protection law and arbitration. And then that we end it with our big vision, you know, and we really design this whole new handshake system. So, you know, I, I think, uh, is anybody ever going to build that system? I don't know. Uh, it, in some respects, now 2017 is starting to sound kind of old because now it's 2020. But uh, I think a lot of those ideas I want to leverage for the work that I'm doing at Mediate.com. And we built, built them into Modria. So, um, you know, it, it's it's uh, the idea. And, you, and I know, Federico, you were talking about this at the conference we attended in Leeds. You know, we're building a new justice system. And when you talk about decentralized justice, you know, it's a justice system that's based on math instead of the coercive power of the state. And there's going to be a lot of innovations that undergird that system. It's not going to be one, you know, unified system and all the disputes kind of have to go through the same tube. It's going to be multifaceted. There's going to be a lot of innovation. There's going to be a lot of different kinds of expertise because that's what technology is really good at. But that's a really radical vision of the future of redress and the future of justice. And I've spent enough time looking at it and enough time seeing you present that I believe it's going to happen. The question is just how, because it's never a straight line. It's always a curvy line. So we and, and I thought this ODR thing was going to happen in two or three years in 2000 and ended up taking 20 years. And it's kind of still going. So we'll see how long it takes. I think things are moving a little bit faster than they were before, but we may still have a good number of years to go before crowdsourced justice starts to threaten the incumbent face-to-face -face justice system. Colleen, I have a question now. You they, you were mentioning the future of justice and technologies and crowd crowdfunding for uh, dispute resolutions. One of the probably the two most sound technologies at this moment in time are blockchain and artificial sure. intelligence. And they seem to be the two technologies that will define the future of ODR. Uh, what's your take about both the existence of blockchain and artificial intelligence in the future of ODR? Well, um, I am excited about both of those technologies. Now, the thing about artificial intelligence is actually machine learning has been around for a long time. I mean, people were, were trying to build these systems in the 70s and the 80s, long before we had the internet. Uh, and actually, if you look at about, if you look at some of the, um, the algorithmic approaches to how machine learning works, it really hasn't changed that much. It's almost like sort algorithms, you know? It, we're still doing the exact same sort algorithms we were doing 20 years ago. What's really changed is the power of computer processors. We now can have, you know, petabytes and petabytes of storage. And we have unbelievably powerful, you know, supercomputer powered, supercomputer comparable computer processors that are available in consumer uh, electronics. Whereas before that same power, you know, you would have had to buy a Cray supercomputer for however many umpteen million dollars. And, and the thing is, Moore's law says computer processors are going to continue to double in power pretty much every two years. Uh, so we're, we're getting close to the singularity you know, where uh, a, the power of a single computer processor rivals the processing power of the human brain. And I think they estimate that's going to happen, you know, sometime, you know, six, eight years out from now. So the reason why artificial intelligence is suddenly so exciting is because of that, the hardware curve. And we're going to be able to process data on a scale that was inconceivable before. Now, blockchain, I think, is interesting, too, because if you look at what's, what's happened with Bitcoin and all these virtual currencies, Ethereum and all these, uh, the hardware and software that's been built to power virtual currencies, 
Um, I think that there is, a, there is an innovation in blockchain, this global unalterable ledger. Um, and I think that there are ways to leverage that to make meaningful progress in building this new justice system because it's, it's fundamentally about trust and the blockchain is a trust technology. But what I see is, I actually think smart contracts are more revolutionary than blockchain in terms of these self-administering contracts that parties can enter into. Now they have to put them someplace. What I feel like is blockchain is being broken apart into a bunch of different things. It's not like there's going to be one blockchain or even a dozen blockchain plain chains. I see people setting up blockchains all over the place. And really fundamentally, it's, they're just they're distributed databases. Uh, so, you know, blockchain to me, I'm, it's starting to get a little fuzzy about what is a blockchain and what's not a blockchain, but I, I'm much more excited about smart contracts. I think that's a really revolutionary technology when it comes to the justice system and, you know, the potential of artificial intelligence right now, uh, it's so, it's kind of fuzzy what it's going to mean. Uh, people talk about AI being so powerful, it's going to drive our cars and make our food and, you know, tell us what clothes to wear in the morning. And I, I'm not sure if that's actually going to be true, but it's, it's fun to think about. Um, so, you know, we'll have to see where that goes. But there are, there are uses of AI and machine learning and there are uses of blockchain and, smart, and smart contracts today that are useful. But a lot of the predictions about what it's gonna matter, I think is still TBD. We have a, lot, a long way to go before we know where it's gonna end up. You know, there is something that Colin told me like several times, like you can make the software do everything you want. Like the thing is that people have to trust it enough to use it, right? right? Um, especially in in what we do, it's social technology. So I always say it's like 50% technology uh, and 50% is kind of mental software upgrade for having people uh, believe that uh, what Kleros does or, or, or potentially what a, a robot uh, does is like is delivering justice and not some other thing. Totally. So. I guess that's that's why um, uh, we try to put so much um, effort uh, in community building aspects like well, like, like the guild and um, because it's about people having to believe that this this actually works and I kind of think kind of think that um, the first wave of the of the ODR in the nineties uh, early two thousand so it was still very early for the mental mindset. Um, of uh, of people like to believe that this could work. I remember the the, the story you told at Leicester when we did Leicester, the conference. Leeds, Leicester, um, right. But that you went to Chicago. Can, can you tell? Yeah, can you tell that is when you went to Chicago to speak to a a, a sure, big sure. law firm, I think, and you wanted them to test something. That was amazing. <laughs> sure, I like that story. Yeah, they they flew me out to this big law firm in Chicago. It was a firm that does insurance litigation, and they were on like the 90th floor, or whatever, one of these crazy high buildings. And the managing partner had brought me out. This guy was probably in his late 50s. And he said, look, we're interested in your technology. So this is early. This was probably 2002, 2003. And I'm a young guy. So I fly out to Chicago and I, and I bring out my software. And they, you know, it's a gorgeous uh, law firm, you know, amazing. Everybody's wearing suits and, you know, fancy offices. So they take me into a conference room and there's all these partners there. And many of them are in their 60s and some of them are in their 70s. And uh, I said, okay, well, I've got my software. I've configured it for you for an insurance case. So go to this website and they all have computers in front of them and they start you know, loading up the website. And I say, okay, well, let's try and resolve the case. And I'm watching these and I just taught this exact same software platform. I had taught it at a business school in Boston before I flew out to Chicago. 
And all the business students, they immediately got it. I mean, they were making offers back and forth and writing agreements. And they were like, wow, this is cool. They were, and they were saying, why doesn't it do this? And why doesn't it do that? And I'm like writing down the features. But these, these partners, again, this was this before we had LinkedIn's, before we had iPads. Um, and they're, they're like looking over the top rim of their glasses and they don't know where to click. And I'm watching these guys and I realize they can't really type. You know, these are, these are lawyers from an era when they dictated all of their letters and all their documents. So they're, they're hunting and pecking. And after about 30 minutes of this, I feel like they're kind of looking around at each other, the partners. And the managing partner is kind of, you know, like, okay, let's try this. Let's, you know, he's trying to give it the old college try. And eventually it's clear they just, you know, they're done. So, uh, so the managing partner says, I think this is great. Thank you so much, Colin, for coming out. It was really interesting, very engaging. You know, he, he shook my hand and everyone said, thank you. And they walked me back to the elevator. I mean, I flew out from Chicago, Boston to Chicago for this whole meeting. And he puts me in the elevator and it takes forever to go down because we're stopping on all these floors. And I'm thinking, I just flew out here for this 35 minute meeting. Why did I do that? And by the time I got to the ground floor, I realized I just have to wait for all of those guys to die. Like, I am not going to be able to change their minds. They can't type. What am I going to do? Like, they, they don't know where to click. They don't know how to use a web browser. So I said, and, and it's not that I need them to die. I'm fine with them just retiring and getting out of the way. But, but the managing <laughs> partner, he was open to it because he was in his 50s and they were all in their 60s and 70s. But then below him, there's another generation and they're much more wired. I guarantee they can type. And they know, you know, they knew how to you get their email and all that stuff. And below them, you know, they're recently graduated three L's from law school coming into the firm. And those guys are totally wired. So the thing is, you just have to get the human resistance out of the way. And it doesn't matter how good the technology is because they aren't going to be able to appreciate it. Now, that said, I presented to a, a, the, the meeting, a membership meeting of JAMS, Judicial Arbitration and Mediation Services. And these are all retired federal judges. It was around the same time period. And I presented and I came in, I'm showing my technology and the body language was hostile. There, you, most of the people in the audience were in their 70s. Crossed arms, from scowling faces. You know, they were not excited about what I was showing them. But then they brought me back 10 years later, almost to the, to the year. So it was 2003 and then it was 2013. And they brought me back and I, and I start showing off this technology and I realize they all, they're all in their 70s, but they all have iPads and they all have iPhones. And they're like, can I get this on my iPad? You know, can I get my PDF? Can I write comments on there? Can I use a pen? And they were open to it. So I have to say, I'm not a big fan of Steve Jobs, but thank you, Steve Jobs, for building the iPhone and the iPad because <laughs> it opened up the minds of these people. And they started to say, oh, okay, well now I don't have to type. You know, I, it's, like a, it's, like a, it's like a legal pad. It's like a smart legal pad. You know, so that's what I mean. The technology, it, it insinuates itself into human nature. And it, it changes people's minds. So at the beginning, I had mediators and, and dispute resolution experts saying to me, this is never going to happen. It has to happen face to face. And now, you know, after, especially after the pandemic, they're saying to me, now, how do I get on Zoom and how do I change my background? You know, like slowly but surely, the technology is not going anywhere. It's just getting better and better all the time. And it's going to insinuate itself into our lives. So it, there is a certain tidal inevitability to these changes. It's going to happen. It's just a question of how long it's going to take for the waves to lap against the retaining wall until it breaks it down. 
Kyan, and I have a so, question. One of the things that I have been looking at in the legal tech industry in general, not only in OER, but in legal tech, sure. and I'm an attorney, and I know sometimes our industry is very timid to change, and actually it's very resistant to changing their ways of doing things, and that's when the new trend of new law or big law and many of the philosophical changes about how attorneys uh, have to change their mi mindset. Right. What has been your experience on breaking their resistance from very traditional lawyers, and, and I include myself sometimes, uh, about the changes that are going in the industry and how technology can actually improve and change our industry for the better? Absolutely. Well, one of the things we talk about in dispute resolution is there's positions and then there's underlying interests. And one of the things we try and do in, a, in an integrative negotiation where you're trying to create value is we try and look at the interest, the underlying interest, because the interests between the two parties are often reconcilable, but the positions may not be. The positions are much more distributive negotiation where there's a fixed pie and every dollar that you get is a dollar I don't get. So one of the things we try and do is we try and look below at what's the interest. And that's the way that I think the legal field needs to think about these changes too. There is, why, why does the law exist? Why do we have a judicial system? Well, fundamentally, it's about providing fair and consistent resolutions to, to disputes, to issues that arise. And, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of issues that emerge within a society. And people in that society need to know that if a problem arises, they're going to be able to get a fast and fair resolution to that issue. And, and some of the law is about preventing those issues from, from arising in the first place. You know, if you get a good attorney, they'll think through all of these potential issues and maybe, you know, prevent them from, from getting out of control. But then other, other attorneys focus on, okay, once we do have a disagreement, how can we resolve it? How can we figure out an appropriate solution? Now, I presented to a lot of bar associations and I work with lawyers every single day, which is ironic because I'm not myself a lawyer, but I teach at Stanford Law School, you know, and I, I, I teach in a lot of law schools and work with a lot of law students. And I think that... In some respects, lawyers are scared of these changes because they don't know how it's going to impact their careers. You know, there's a quote from Upton Sinclair, a famous author. He says, it's almost impossible to get a man to understand a truth if his paycheck is dependent on him not understanding that truth. And I think a lot of lawyers see these changes and they say, mm -mm, I don't want any of that because I, I've been trained to work a certain way. My practice works a certain way. I resist the change. So it gets back to what Federico was saying about being resistant to change. But the other thing is lawyers know better than anybody, lawyers and judges and court administrators and legal service professionals, they know the shortcomings of the existing process. I think there's a bit of romanticism in society about how well the judicial system works. And when you actually get into it and you see the sausage being made, you see how many self-represented litigants you are. You see how people of color or low income people get worse outcomes than white people or affluent people. So I think they know the changes. You know, we say, who is the biggest victim of the billable hour? Well, it's lawyers. I mean, lawyers have incredibly high rates of depression and burnout. And I get contacted constantly by lawyers who are saying, I want to get into dispute resolution. I'm just, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of litigation. I'm sick of writing the same tax shelter over and over again. And they, they want to be in the peace building business because fundamentally that's, that's the fun part, finding solutions, helping people, you know, get, helping people move on with their lives. So I think that for the attorneys that recognize the shortcomings in the system, and they see where all of this technological change is leading, there's going to be an enormous amount of opportunity. And I said this to you before, Federico, there is going to be a billionaire in legal tech, probably multiple billionaires. There will be a Mark Zuckerberg of legal tech. The thing is, we don't know if that person is in third grade right now or if they're a 3L. 
at, at Harvard Law, or maybe they live in Bangalore, or maybe they live in Accra. Like, we don't know where this innovation is going to come from. That's kind of the exciting thing about, uh, you know, this world. But I think we can see that these changes are going to happen. And if you look at finance and you look at medicine and you look at entertainment, technology has completely disrupted those fields. But the fields didn't go away. It's just technology was brought into those fields to better achieve the objectives of those fields. And that's what's going to happen in the law. The law is created to deliver fast and fair resolutions, to prevent, manage, and resolve disputes. And once we bring technology into it, we can achieve those objectives even better. So the, just like in the old days, there were people on the floor of the stock exchange, you know, waving pieces of paper saying, I want to buy 500 shares of IBM. Who wants to buy this? All those people's jobs are gone. Now it's computers that are doing those trades, but there are more people working in finance than ever before. And what are they doing? They're programming those computers that are doing those trades. And that's the future of the law. It's not gonna be people wearing starchy suits and standing in front of jury boxes. I mean, there's still gonna be some of that, but a lot of that face-to-face -face human powered aspect of the law, once technology is fully integrated, it's gonna go away and we're gonna have agents essentially that we program to be advocates for one party or the other party and engage in negotiations and other agents may come in and, and be the arbitrators or the mediators to try and find resolutions and this is going to be happening at scale 24 7. computers are going to be resolving these cases and the reason why we're going to make the change is because it will be measurably fairer faster more efficient it will achieve the objectives of justice that statue of the, the blindfolded woman holding the scales technology is going to enable us mm. to live up to that model more than the system we have today. And that's why it's going to change. But it, fundamentally, the reason why people are going to go along with it is because they're going to be self-interested and they're going to want to make money. So my grandfather always used to say, you know that don't build your business where the highway is. Build your yeah. business where the highway is going. And that's what lawyers need to realize. You got to get ahead of it. And then this is going to be a huge opportunity. You know, I, I, I get the... Um... Uh, lots of questions um, about, hey, how is this corona situation going to affect law? Because now they have the, the hearings online and Zoom. Uh, but like, you know, the answer is, so this was going to happen anyway. Like, this was the trend of technology going this direction. Um, the corona, it may speed things up because suddenly you get lawyers doing like hearings by Zoom. And that was hard to maybe imagine before. But like this is the, how the technology is evolving. Um, so let me ask you, Colin. Like, um, so you have all this career in ODR, uh, basically building a big part of the of the sure. field. Um, like, what are you doing now in Mediate.com? Like, how all your previous experience like um, is impacting what you do now, and and what is your vision there? Well, I'll tell you, you know, Mediate.com, I think, is the biggest dispute resolution website in the world. I mean, in terms of traffic, um, that's true for Mediate. It's just been around for 25 years. And I think that a lot of mediators, they really rely on Mediate.com to house their practice. And those, those are my people. I am a mediator at heart. So I want to build technology tools that can benefit mediators. Now, one of the sites that Mediate.com has owned for a long time and not developed is Arbitrate.com. So, and I love arbitrators too. I think arbitrators and mediators were both part of the same field. So now we put a lot of time and energy into developing arbitrate. And I'm excited about that because online mediation, online arbitration, they really go hand in glove. And from the standpoint of parties, they want to be able to draw seamlessly on both of those solutions. So one of the things that we have launched um, is mediationexpress.com. 
And again, you mentioned COVID. I mean, the pandemic has essentially forced all mediators to become online mediators. So Mediation Express enables any party anywhere in the world to come to one website and they can select a mediator and begin a mediation process online. And it's all streamlined and it's, you know, it's cheap to get started. So, you know, what I really want to do is I want to innovate in the area of online dispute resolution service delivery. And we have a lot of exciting plans around how to do that in terms of making accessing mediators and arbitrators easier, but also leveraging algorithmic tools like calculators and game theory um, and crowdsourcing. I mean, I've said this to you too, Federico. I think crowdsourcing is a, is a huge part of the future of online dispute resolution. So, you know, I want to partner with organizations that are doing that too. But we talked about uh, smart contracts. We talked about machine learning. I love all of that. I want to integrate that into one location where mediators, practitioners like mediators and arbitrators can utilize those tools, but also individual disputants. Awesome. Awesome, um, Colin. Well, um, I think that we took already much of your time. Um, just uh, thank you for being in the first episode of uh, the Decentralized uh, Justice podcast. Um, like it's great to have a friend uh, with you, like you uh, speaking about this in the first, because we are nervous. It's our first time. So um, awesome. Um, do you have anything, a uh, final message to say to the audience? Uh, oh, gosh, that you're putting a lot of pressure on me. But I will say, Federico, as I said at the beginning, I'm a huge fan of what you're doing. You're a big thinker. You're a smart guy. I can't wait to see where all of this leads. Uh, and I'm, I'm eager to find opportunities for the two of us to collaborate. You know, you were the one who called me in your blog post, uh, the godfather <laughs> of ODR. And now people call me that all over the world. So I owe you one. So I need to come up with a good name for you, Federico. And I'm thinking about it. I'm warning you, Mauricio, if you have any ideas for me, let me know so we can start to do some SEO around this. But uh, I can't wait to see uh, uh, where all of this heads. And thank you for having me as your first guest. I, I, I really appreciate it and I'm honored. Thank you, Colin. It was a pleasure having you as a guest in the first episode of the Decentralized Justice Broadcast. And uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, I am Federico Ast. I am CEO at Cleros. And this was Colin Rule, the godfather of online dispute resolution. See you in the next episode. Bye bye.